everyone. I'm Joan Kerr. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum, one of the Pentecrest Museums on the Central Campus. Our production partners are UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI Iowa City, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available along with all programs in this series as a free podcast on iTunes. Tonight our topic is the history of sustainability. Sustainability is one of the watchwords of our era. It's been described as the capacity to endure, and it speaks to the interrelationships between humans and nature and what it takes to exist in harmony, both in the present time and long into the future. Although it may feel like a contemporary concept, the idea of sustainability as the proper balance between what we take from the earth and what we safeguard for the benefit of ourselves and future generations has been around for a long time. Our guests tonight will discuss the history and concept of sustainability from varied vantage points and disparate disciplines. We'll reflect on the rise of global environmental concerns in centuries past, learn about the Americas and how climate and weather patterns have affected population growth and expansion. We'll explore water resource issues, global climate change, and Iowa's efforts toward a sustainable future. And we'll also take a look at the ways in which art and film have addressed the environment and changing landscapes. We'll also hear how UI professors and students are creating new business models based on sustainability strategies, and we'll see how a hands-on sustainability effort in Africa has expanded the worldview of UI students while improving the living conditions in uh, for village residents. Um, there's a lot to talk about, so we do want to begin with the uh, guests who are here on stage, and I'll introduce them one by one. I'll start with Jerry Schnorr, who's at the far end of the stage. Hi, Jerry. Thanks Hi, so much for coming. Uh, Jerry is a professor here at the University of Iowa, professor of civil and environmental engineering, as well as occupational and environmental health. He's a co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, editor-in-chief of the Environmental Science and Technology Journal, and he also holds the Alan S. Henry Chair in the College of Engineering. So, <laughs> good to have you, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, and uh, next to him is Jonathan Carlson. Hi, John. Hi, John. Uh, John is UI Professor of Law and International Studies, the Victor and Carol Alvarez Fellow in Law, and he specializes in international environmental law and the law of global climate change. And uh, next to him is Gillen Wood. You are a guest here at the University of Iowa this week. Thank you. For you're me you're very welcome. I'm so glad you could join us. I know that you're a professor of English and Sustainability Studies at the University of Illinois. And you are a guest of one of international programs, uh, programs and centers, which uh, is the 18th and 19th century interdisciplinary colloquium. It's kind of a mouthful, but we're happy you could be here this week. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. And uh, just next to me here is Roland Rachevskis. Hello, Joan. Hi, uh, University of Iowa professor and chair of the Department of French and Italian in the Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. And Roland currently teaches courses on ecological approaches to fiction. So I'd like to begin this conversation with uh, Jerry Schnorr, I think, to see if we can get some basic definitions of some of the terms we're likely to use tonight. And the first big one is sustainability. What does an engineer mean when he uses the term sustainability? Um, uh, our students often look up the term uh, for class, and I think they found over 300 definitions available on the internet. So uh, that's one difficulty: is the term is quite broad and means different things to uh, different folks, and you kind of have to define what you mean by it. But in our case, we, uh, generally, 
we often reflect on the Brundtland Commission report, Our Common Future, which is meeting the needs of the present without sacrificing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So one important element is this element of intergenerational equity that we have to care about what future generations, uh, what we leave for them mm -hmm. and what uh, they have to work with. Yeah, and uh, I know we have a number of people here on stage who will be talking about sort of how far this goes back? Are these new ideas? Is this a um, sort of uh, national and international interest in sustainability actually a new thing? Did it live within individuals and families in prior generations, and now it's really become a you know, political as well as you know social cause? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that from the field of engineering? Well, I think that uh, one thing that has changed ma humans have always been active in changing the face of the earth and making it in some ways uh, a very changing place, if not an unsustainable place. But what is different now is that we're able to affect uh, the entire planet. Uh, before the problems were mainly local and regional problems, but now we're able to affect the entire atmosphere. We're accumulating greenhouse gases there. And the ocean, we're acidifying the entire ocean, believe it or not. Yeah. And these things can't go on forever, or there'll be irreparable uh, damage to the ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Well, and also these days there is the ability to, to investigate things that we, we didn't have the tools for before. You can analyze water in a way that wasn't possible a hundred years ago. Or, That's you know, true. Yeah. Well, um, let me go to you, Gil, and I'd like to ask you a question related to your research. As I understand it, you've done a lot of research about uh, a cataclysmic event that happened in the 1830s, is that correct? Well, actually, the second decade of the 19th century. I call it the greatest natural disaster that you've never heard of. It's the, erup <laughs> the massive eruption of a, a volcano in Indonesia, in Tambora, in 1815, that precipitated a three-year period of global climate deterioration, so global cooling in this case rather than warming. But I nevertheless use it as a, a case study in the social and environmental impacts of a sustained period of, of climate decline. Mm -hmm. as, uh, in addition to cooling, we saw worldwide an alteration of storm tracks, precipitation patterns, as well as agricultural crisis across continents of Asia, America, and Europe. So it's an attempt to write a kind of global case study of what happens to human communities in different parts of the world when there is an abrupt and, and drastic change in climatic conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between the case study and, and what we're um, currently facing. Of course, there are differences in the early 19th century. It's essentially a pre-industrial world. But also in the early 21st so in the early 21st century, we have greater means of resilience to such climate disasters, but also the scale in the 21st century is much greater, mm -hmm. is, mu mm -hmm. is much longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as as um, people became aware that this, Indonesia, you know, it, it, we're talking about technological changes, of course, now we seem to be wired into every part of the um, known world by some kind of technology, cameras everywhere, ways to communicate quickly, but, uh, you know, 150 years ago, this wouldn't have been the case. So at the time, were there were there um, thinkers in various parts of the world who could connect what had happened in this fairly remote island with what was happening in their land? Absolutely not. And that's been the challenge for me as an historian to uh, narrativize an event of which none of the participants understood the global yeah. scale. 
Uh, and you're right about the history of communications. If you think about it, it's only in the mid-19th century that we get advanced, we get the telegraph. So that by the end of as interconnecting various parts of the world, so that by the end of the 19th century, when you have a major calamity, volcanic calamity such as Krakatoa, yeah. people in Europe in the United States know the day after. Whereas in 1815, it, um, the event really, it was a regional calamity uh, and it precipitate this worldwide uh, disaster, but it, the, nobody connected the dots at the time, and I would argue that the dots haven't fully been connected and, until now, mm -hmm. and uh, my purpose in writing the book has been to, to connect the global dots and to show the teleconnections, as the climate scientists say, the teleconnections that link remote events, people and places through the agency of the interconnected clim uh, climate system. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd also love to have you tell us about this interesting position you hold at the University of Illinois, because when I read that you're a professor of English and sustainability studies, I thought, wow, I wonder, if, is, is this a unique uh, approach? Well, almost a unique. I, I hope it's the beginning of, of uh, you know, something, something grand. I, I, I bring to the idea of sustainability studies the idea that our education institutions, particularly at the undergraduate level, are in need of de desperate need of retooling so as to prepare um, the, younger the young generation of today for the kinds of problems that they will face in whatever, pro whatever professional career that they choose. Um, I don't think we've, th th our institutions are, have been slow to adapt to the particular, to the cluster of ecological crises that are, and energy crises that are, that are facing us in the early 20th century. And to boil it down to a simple principle, I would say that what we need is less of a model that deals in the mastery of a specific discipline, but rather competencies across a broad range of disciplines. This is what our, um, our graduates are going to need moving into, moving into the professional sphere uh, in, in the 21st century. So moving out of the idea of specialization toward a kind of general uh, competence in areas, a, a, a better understanding of the complexity of multiple systems, mm -hmm. be they human systems or natural systems, mm -hmm. rather than specific deep knowledge of, of, of only one field. Okay. Well, well, thank you. Um, that'll lead me over to you, I think, John. I'm from the field of law, uh, international law, a law about uh, uh, some of the things that are happening across borders and what uh, people describe as climate change. What can you tell us about, about the legal world's relationship to notions of sustainability? Well, you know, I, I, we think of sustainability as a normative concept, not, a, not as a technical concept. So it, it's a concept about, as I look at it, the proper role of governments and societies in, in four dimensions. People talk about the three um, triple bottom line, economics, environment, and equity. And the fourth dimension is over time, generation to generation. Uh, and, and so that's how you see it as a, as a legal idea. As a, it, it's an idea about how governments and societies should respond to challenges to promote economic growth, environmental protection, equity. Um, over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say in terms of the history, we think about this as a new idea, but it's really a, a, a very, very old idea. 
uh, about governments, and I and I jotted down a few examples that I that I wanted to share about this. If we think about the framers of our Constitution, the people who wrote the Constitution for this country, they were very concerned with issues of equity and fairness. We know they were concerned with economic growth issues. That was among the one of the reasons they formed the Constitution was to get national control over commerce uh, to promote economic growth. But they were also concerned with sustainability. This was all wrapped up in sustainability, so I, I pulled open my copy of the Constitution, and here's how it starts. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and, and design this Constitution. They had it clearly in their mind that they were doing something for the future, and that something was promoting equity economy. They weren't thinking too much about the environment because it seemed boundless mm -hmm. to them at, at the time. Uh, there's another example that uh, uh, when questions originally arose about the interpretation of the Constitution, one of the, one of the great um, early Supreme Court justices was a man named John Marshall, and uh, he wrote something that invokes, without using the word, the idea of sustainability and resilience uh, with reference to the Constitution. He said, ours is a Constitution intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. Uh, Alexander Hamilton said a similar thing about the constitutional structure and its design to protect human rights. Um, if I can find it here, um, what, did, what was Hamilton's? Oh yes, he said the Constitution is structured to protect the rights of individuals from the effects of those ill humors which sometimes disseminate among the people themselves. And what he meant was, we're trying to write a constitution that addresses the fact that government doesn't always go smoothly, that people sometimes are ready to do things that are inequitable and unjust to other people, and we need to do that. Mm -hmm. So th those basic ideas, equity and economy, mm -hmm. as part of sustainability, have been around a long time. Environment came later, and there's one other I, I want to mention here, because I think it's worth mentioning. In 1893, the United, 1890, well actually the early 1890s, the U.S. became very concerned because British sealers were uh, wiping all, out the fur seals in the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska. Uh, so we, we started an international arbitration against Great Britain, and our advocate argued to the arbitral panel, which included a king of some European country and a few other Europeans and a U.S. senator and a U.S. Supreme Court justice, uh, the U.S. arbitrator uh, said a lot of things that and I'd love to read you the whole 2,000-page <laughs> written argument. But <laughs> I'll just give you this little passage because it so captures the notion of environmental sustainability uh, with an equity dimension to it. 
He said, nature's gift of natural resources, and here he's referring to like the seals, like the seals in the ocean. Nature's gift of natural resources is not to this nation or that, but to mankind. Now, this is 1893, today we'd say humankind, mm -hmm. but is to mankind. All generations, future as well as present, are intended. The earth was designed as the permanent abode of man through ceaseless generations. Each generation, as it appears upon the scene, is entitled only to use the fair inheritance. It is against the law of nature that any waste should be committed to the disadvantage of the succeeding tenants. And then the argument was what the British sealers are doing will wipe out the seal population, and we cannot do this. It's against the law of nature. It's against the fundamental principle of sustainability and the protection of future generations. This is 1893. The arbitrator said, great argument, no law. You lose. <laughs> But we think you're right, and we recommend that the two countries enter into a treaty to protect the seals, and they did exactly that, and the seals are still with us today. Uh, so these are, a to my mind, fundamental ideas. They aren't new. It's just that we're starting to rediscover them yeah. and to realize how much they apply to the circumstances in which we find uh, the world today. Mm -hmm. Well, so most of us living in this country have some sense of, of the arguments that might be made that involve the United States specifically, but around the world, um, and in the UN also, are these, um, how, how, is there much argument between countries over these basic assumptions, these things that you've alluded to here? There's no argument, I don't think, uh, over the basic assumptions. Back as long ago as 1972, the idea of sustainability um, was incorporated into international policy conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, the argument, really, frankly, is about whose responsibility it is <laughs> to yeah. make sure that what we do is right. sustainable, with uh, the developing countries say, uh, look, we are so far behind you economically and in terms of economy and equity that you have to cut us some slack. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have to take the lead in addressing problems like climate change and, um, and um, other environmental problems. And moreover, you ought to give us some money to help us address our problems. Right. Uh, so, so the fights aren't over the basic idea that we need to protect the planet of the environment and that good governance means also allowing people enough material wealth to have a decent life, the equity, um, and promoting some economic development. The argument is about whose responsibility it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gillen, were you preparing to say something there? Yeah, I, I think that um, John has highlighted two aspects of the, the crisis, um, the general crisis with you know, the cluster of crises associated with climate change and ecosystem drawdown, that it, in, it's been described both as a classic tragedy of the commons i.e. that there's no natural property rights in the atmosphere or, or in the oceans. Uh, and it's also been described as the most colossal market failure in, in the history of the world, that, what, that um, there's been, what, we've, what has been revealed over time is an essential incompatibility between a cornucopian view of the world, which I would say the, the founders 
had, the, the idea of the limitless abundance of natural resources, that cornucopian view and the, the, um, the actual nature of, of the world's ecosystems, that they are capable of being, of being depleted and being degraded. Um, so at, it, we find ourselves, I think, at, a, at the crossroads here in, in, from the legal standpoint, in tackling problems uh, for which there is no great body of legal precedent and, and no, no um, substantial historical precedent either, at least on the global scale. I mean, the discussion began with a, with a reference to the intergenerational contract, the idea that we are curators of natural resources that we then pass on to future generations. That is not enshrined in any body of Western law, that, that concept. It's, um, it's a part of the Iroquois Foundation, the idea that any, um, that any decision made by elders should take into consideration its effects seven generations down the line. But it doesn't belong, uh, it, it doesn't belong in Western law. But if we think about it, it, we do have cultural and institutional precedents for the idea of an intergenerational contract. The, the University of Iowa itself, uh, built over many, many generations, and the product of generations of investment of, of the people of Iowa for the benefit of future generations yet unborn. That is a sort of cultural precedent for the concept of sustainability. I think we can draw upon in the, in the glaring absence of a, of a body of, of actual, actual law to define it. Well, let me bring Roland Rocheskis into this discussion as well. Now, you teach French, you're the chair of the Department of French and Italian, and you teach courses on ecological fiction. Tell us what that is. Yeah, well, um, you know, as, as Gillan is saying, um, you know, when it becomes a cultural problem, someone like me who comes from the, the Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures focuses on how different languages and cultures formulate some of these problems, some of which may be universal, some of which need to be historicized very carefully. I initially have specialized in my work in the 17th century, um, and I'm currently actually teaching uh, the Discourse on Method by René Descartes, which goes back to 1637. Uh, so, you know, even much earlier than, than what's been discussed uh, so far. And in that text, I'm working with students to figure out uh, to what degree Descartes may have or may not have anticipated some of the issues that we face today, particularly considering the fact that he's been such an influential thinker uh, in terms of the way that we've done science in the Western world for uh, quite some time now. And, you know, to take that as an example, um, again, this published in the French language um, as a kind of democratic attempt, to, you know, as opposed to in Latin, uh, to reach a wider readership in, in the 17th century culture. Um, for Descartes, the world is limitless, and for that reason, somewhat threatening and needs to be technologically controlled. And that was very much a dream for the humanity of the, what we might call the early modern world. And as we look back at it today, some of the ideas, some of the notions on which a scientific method is based may seem kind of appalling when we're looking at it from the standpoint of the age of environmental limits and very stark environmental limits that we're facing today. So some of what I do in the classroom is to work with students to um, look at issues of sustainability and um, ecology in a variety of periods from the 
loosely from the Renaissance until the present in um, French uh, language um, and culture. Yeah. What do the students find most interesting? What's, what's the feedback that you get from your students? Well, the students um, always make me very hopeful because I find myself um, coming to a lot of the material with a certain degree of um, pessimism uh, that they often don't share uh, when, I, when I teach to undergrads. Um, the students, I, I, I have found the undergrads that I teach in, in this particular course are very uh, oriented toward problem solving and ready to deal with, ready to grapple with translations of Middle French just as they're ready to grapple with whatever's coming through on their uh, smartphones. Um, and um, so one, one of the, the issues I've tried to look at with them is in, in the kind of work that, that I do is the, the risk of anachronism that is applying concerns of the 21st century to, in this case, the first half of the 17th century. Um, and kind of unpacking, and it goes back to your initial question really, which of these ideas have been with us? How do they morph over historical time? How are they relevant to different social and cultural formations throughout history? And what continuities, and just as interestingly, discontinuities are there between earlier historical moments and what we're dealing with right now? And I, you know, I think scholars from within the humanities would argue that it's, it's critical to really revisit a lot of earlier um, literary, cultural, and artistic um, documents in ways that really our fields have not done fully. Uh, our fields have been what we might call very anthropocentric uh, over the last you know, uh, 30, 50 plus years and are only now with um, environmental literary criticism or eco-criticism uh, taking into account non-human environments um, and uh, non-human concerns on a par with, oh, I don't know, characters like Rastignac and Balzac, which, you know, where the focus has been very psychological and human-centered. And I, I think it could be very tonic for the field and um, I find it very encouraging that at a, at a university like the University of Iowa, you could have someone in literary studies be on the same panel as yeah. folks like my colleagues <laughs> here uh, from engineering yeah. to international law. Right, 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 right. Well, I, I want to ask uh, you guys as well, Jerry and John, to tell me something about your experience with your students. You know, what, what are the surprises that you discover along the way when you're introducing students into either some of your work, um, studying water, water patterns, the health of our water, the, um, future of our, uh, we'll just concentrate on water for a minute because I know that's a major uh, area of your concern, Jerry. Um, what do you find your students are most intrigued by or most interested in? Regarding the history of sustainability, you know, from a curricular standpoint, it's very recent uh, history. I think we've had a certificate program here at the University of Iowa in sustainability for uh, three years or so, and we've, uh, I've personally been uh, teaching a class for 10 years now called Sustainable Systems. And the students never cease to amaze me with the um, creativity and the problem-solving abilities that they can uh, come up with. It's very open-ended class and projects-oriented. And I try to challenge them that I'm not interested in just another uh, white paper assignment or a design, uh, a design report. Rather, I want you to actually do something to make the world maybe your residence hall, your home, your apartment, your community, more sustainable, and that it should perpetuate itself. 
that's a pretty tall challenge in a 15-week uh, yeah. course, but uh, you'd be surprised what they're able to come up with. And uh, I often all also think, well, gee, we're, they're going to run out of ideas. There can't possibly be anything more, but each semester, um, uh, more and more great ideas. Uh, this year, we're looking at uh, total reuse of materials in uh, hospital surgical uh, rooms. In the past, we've looked at uh, composting the food wastes in the uh, residence hall uh, food services, uh, improving uh, biking and bike racks on campus. Uh, they've constructed, I think, three different rain gardens on campus uh, to uh, collect rainfall in perpetuity, so to speak. Nice. And uh, they've gone to industries, even like Procter & Gamble here in town, and continuously uh, found new ways, even in an existing long-term industry, to save water, energy, and money. That's sort of the three stools of sustainability <laughs> that John yeah. Carlson mentioned yeah. uh, earlier, and create jobs also. That's right. the social equity standpoint. Right. So I'm, I'm continuously impressed by my students and inspired by them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, thank you. And well, John, I wanted to ask you the same question. You know, my, my students are, they're interested in the same thing, using concepts of sustainability to solve problems. I, I think they're frustrated when they discover the point that Gillen made, that there isn't a sustainability norm there in the law that they can bring into court to force somebody to change their behavior, that it, it turns out to be a much more difficult process, both at the international level and at the national level, of getting countries to buy into uh, policies and principles that further the sustainability goal. And I, and I think that, but I, but I think their interest is in uh, understanding the problems we face, figuring out what kind of um, principles should guide our resolution of them, and then trying to articulate solutions that hopefully Mm -hmm. our political leaders can endorse in, to some extent or another. Mm -hmm. Well, and is this a, a sort of a perfect example of enlightened self-interest? Um, is, is that um, a concept that works with this whole idea of sustainability? Well, I, I, I think so, that the, the idea that we can apply the usual liberal consciousness-raising model or um, traditional ethical models uh, um, to, to sustainability is probably un, un, unreal. That you know, altruism is 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 uh, uh, one better sentiment that you could appeal to. But really, so it's we're all in this together. And I yeah. think once we enlarge our sense of who we are, all are is mm -hmm. in the concept in in that sort of collective concept, we realise that with um, the global commons of the atmosphere and the world's ecosystems being interconnected and connecting us globally, that yes, we need to have a connective, connected and global understanding of, um, uh, of our lives, our lifestyles and the decisions uh, that we make. It all comes down to decision making at the, ver at the very local level, at the governmental level and at the level of international institutions. And it's at that, the second two phases that, um, we seem to be uh, seem to be paralysed at the moment. Um, I think there's a lot of sust the sustainability movement across the United States and other parts of the world is very evident at the local and grassroots level. Has not yet permeated up to the high levels, the high levels of government. If I could just pick up to pick up on a point that we were making mm -hmm. about students and at, at the university, 
that uh, the, the challenge is to create a kind of parallel track for both students and faculty, because we can, uh, I think there's an untapped market, if you like, uh, of students interested in, highly interested and invested in the idea of sustainability and educating themselves, but there's not yet that body of faculty who are fully who are properly trained to, um, to, to, to teach in the classroom. I can speak for myself. I was trained as a romanticist. I teach Wordsworth. <laughs> and uh, I find myself in mid-career, or early mid-career, I like to say, uh, as, uh, just feeling the necessity of retraining myself in a variety of fields so that I can bring uh, sustainability ideas and concepts into the classroom and properly teach a class on, mm -hmm. this, on this subject. So it, one thing that we're doing at the University of Illinois is creating an annual teaching sustainability workshop where we gather together a couple of dozen faculty from across a range of disciplines from anthropology to English to mathematics, all of whom have a kind of beginning interest in the idea of integrating sustainability into the classroom but often don't have the first idea of how mm -hmm. to go about it. We come together, we, we brainstorm ideas. We think particularly about um, different modes of pedagogy such as experiential learning a lot of our students at the University of Illinois, they're from the suburbs of Chicago. They've never really even properly seen the night sky before. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a constituency, you would you'd say, somewhat disconnected from, uh, from uh, ecosystemic realities. <laughs> so you know, we take them out on the prairie, we have them, um, we have them crawling through the, the creeks looking for mollusks. You know, we, we, it, you know this kind of embodied, more embodied experience uh, of, of the environment, but also to to return to another idea that was raised earlier, the idea of problem-based learning, uh, where you, we think about, you think of the classroom as a kind of problem-solving pod, where you, uh, you introduce a, uh, an issue, for instance, let's say, um, the collapse of the honeybee population in the United States. Mm -hmm. and you give that problem to the, to the students, and you give them an assortment of, of texts and images to work with. It might be a scientific paper on colony collapse disorder. It might be a passage from the ancient Roman poet Virgil's Georgics writing about bee husbandry. It might be Winnie the Pooh. Uh, it might be a, pop, a, a um, scaremongering media report about the end of honey. Uh, so it, it, I think this is what I mean by a kind of systems literacy approach to the teaching of sustainability. Mm -hmm. it, it's not it, it, the... Being, uh, it's important to be versed in the technical science, in the technical side of the problem, the scientific side of the problem, but the cultural dimensions, the human dimensions of the mm -hmm. problem are just as important and just as complex. Mm -hmm. uh, Roland, when you go back now, having, having developed an increasing interest in this whole sustainability thing and, and reading fiction in a somewhat different way, do you find that you go back to read something you read 20 years ago and you're now picking up things in that, in that writing that you hadn't really focused on before, you hadn't really noticed, and now it has a new kind of meaning for you. Yeah, absolutely. I actually ran across an example of that today when I was working with a, a student for, uh, through the Iowa Center for Research by undergraduates who's helping me go through the essays of Michel de Montaigne and uh, looking at where Montaigne, kind of an essayist and philosopher from 16th century France, uh, looks at human-non-human relations in particular and throws those into question. Um, and there is one text, for example, that we have on our master's list in our graduate program um, where that we teach, uh, it's about the education of children. And from going back with, with my research assistant and looking at, at that text through this new critical lens, I never realized how much Montaigne says about 
how children need to be exposed to their physical world as a part of their education. Um, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's an example of how it has transformed a lot of, I mean, my own readings of things. And I found that with students, I've, I've taught the type of classes of, you know, the formal structural principles of a 500-page novel. And I, I think that's still important. It's getting harder and harder to teach that way. But when you bring in some of these very urgent issues uh, that sometimes cross cultures, um, there's no problem in getting students to get very engaged uh, in their coursework, uh, in doing kinds of service learning projects in their community, in their dorms, in the campus community. Um, it's, you know, it's, the class periods are too short. Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, any concluding thoughts before we uh, say goodbye to this group? John, were you ready to say something? Yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to respond yeah. to something Gillen said, and mm -hmm. it, it relates to the fact that sustainability has to be a interdisciplinary exercise. We need mm -hmm. people from all areas in it. Um, he made the comment that there are not just scientific dimensions, but others. Right now, an issue that is in the news, and I'm sure will be more and more in the news, is the question of what's called geoengineering or climate engineering. There are, there are scientists and some very rich individuals and some private companies that are asking governments to look seriously at the possibility that the solution to global warming is going to have to be global engineering of the climate, whether by putting particles in the, in the atmosphere to reflect the sun and cool us down or fertilizing the oceans to grow more algae and suck carbon out, all sorts of propositions. And there are, there are a lot of scientific work on this. But there also needs to be some ethical work on this issue because certain geoengineering solutions may be good for the planet, but bad for some parts of the mm -hmm. planet. Mm -hmm. and, and we need people to be thinking about about all of these issues. Mm -hmm. So it's really an interdisciplinary effort. Right. Yeah, on that concept of geoengineering, which has actually reached the cabinet level uh, of President Obama, so these geoengineers who have been on the margins of, 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 um, of government for, for generations and now have a place at the table. I can speak as somebody who studied the historical impact of volcanic eruptions that you, you really don't want to inject enormous loads of sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere for the purpose of, of cooling the planet for a few years. It, there are outcomes that you simply cannot predict mm -hmm. and um, that would most certainly be bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we're gonna have you back up here a little bit later, Jerry. Thank you, and I, I think for, for the moment, we'll just uh, say thank you to all of you folks. Uh, really enlightening, I so appreciate it. Jerry Schnorr at the end, John Carlson uh, next to him, Gillen Wood, thank you for being with us, and Roland Rachevskis, please say thank you to our guests. Thank you. <laughs> so I'd like to bring up our next uh, group of guests, uh, Laura Regal, Barbara Eckstein, Sarah Knaus, and Kyle Stein, and Chad Volrath, if you'd please join me here. We'll uh, take a look at this issue from a slightly different angle here. Um, please just come on up and uh, join me. <laughs> So this is World Canvas. Those of you who've just joined us, thank you so much for coming. I'm Joan Kerr, and this program is produced by International Programs, and uh, our guests are just getting settled now. 
Uh, hi, Barbara Eckstein is at the far end of our group there. Hi, good to have you with us. And she's a professor here at the University of Iowa in the Department of English, a faculty member of the University of Iowa's Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. She specializes in studies of space and place and studies how weather and climate have affected people here in Iowa. And uh, next to Barbara is Chad Volrath, a graduate student in communication studies, and his work centers on media history and communications. Thanks for being here, Chad. And uh, Sarah Knaus is just next to Chad. She's a University of Iowa professor of art and intermedia, and she examines the intersections between citizenship, public space, landscape, and historical memory. So good to have you here. And Kyle Stein is just next to me, and he's a graduate student in cinema and comparative literature. And I came to know about some of Kyle's work because he was in charge of an environmental film series that was uh, held throughout this last fall. And uh, a, a very interesting set of films I wanted to talk to you about about that. Uh, Barbara, let me start with you. So you're in the Department of English, and one of the things you, you study is sustainability or spaces, places, what, what happens to people here in Iowa, particularly when you know, they undergo some kind of climate change or something affects the way they live. Um, how does this all work together in your mental life? Uh, funny. Uh, well, um, I, I come to this work in part uh, out of an experience of uh, living in New Orleans and then wanting to work on New Orleans and finding that my interests in history and literature and the various facets of culture uh, that are manifest in that place and every place uh, are not possible to speak about without talking about the environment in which they exist, the more than human environment, and also the way that those places are affected by the changes to that environment from um, human-created forces and, and climate change. So uh, in working on uh, materials about New Orleans, I, I found my way to sustainability and to uh, the Brundtland uh, definition and to the world of urban planning, and, and uh, these things uh, became a, a necessary part of, of uh, for me, a, a palatial study that would be uh, local in its detail, but global in its implications, and that's the core of, of uh, my work ever since, really. Yeah. Well, so did you begin your work with New Orleans as a place before Katrina? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, I, I had the dubious distinction of publishing my, my work that took me nearly a decade to research and write uh, about a month after Katrina. Uh, the um, uh, sad, but uh, maybe for me personally, um, uh, worthy news was that the, the work, in fact, um, was not uh, irrelevant at all to this transformation because the transformation was written in the ecological practices of the place for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And have you spent a fair amount of time there uh, since Katrina and watching the rebuilding or the struggles? Uh, yes, some, mm -hmm. although uh, I try very much to uh, work where I am in part so that my own carbon footprint is not enormous. So. It became too carbon expensive for me to continue to work on New Orleans, mm -hmm. and thus my work shifted to mm -hmm. Iowa and the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So, so tell us um, some of what you're, you're thinking about here in relationship to Iowa and uh, population patterns and so on. 
Well, um, my work in New Orleans and, and here as well is, is very much um, predicated on the, on the need to engage a range of publics in the production of knowledge and the dissemination of knowledge. So um, uh, perhaps not so much as, as someone like Sarah who's, whose work can reach publics very quickly, but, um, but uh, nevertheless, it, to the extent that I can textually, I'm, I'm interested in pulling uh, oral histories and local knowledge into how I understand a place and also how different audiences in my classrooms and people who would read the kind of thing I write, but also people who would not read the kind of thing I write, how those people can be brought into uh, conversations about these issues. I mean, we, we hear again and again what um, uh, the, the scientists in the audience know better than I, that conservation efforts on the part of all of us would make a tremendous, tremendous difference in human effects on climate change. Well, that's a, that's a social and a political problem. It's not a scientific problem. The, what we need to do scientifically, person to person, is not so complicated or, or it's not a, a, a fancy engineering feat. It's, it's a matter of communication and persuasion and understanding and, and uh, living together. And that's, that's uh, the work of, of someone like me and my mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wonderful. Thank, yeah, thank you. Well, you kind of threw the ball to Sarah there, so I want to get into <laughs> her world, uh, art and intermedia, just a little bit. And, and uh, I, I know you're working on lots of different things, and, and you are a sort of multidisciplinary in the work mm -hmm. you do. So uh, tell us what your uh, interest is in sustainability or landscapes, environment, uh, related to your work in art. Sure. Well, um, the arts, I think, have traditionally been the place where people learn new ways of seeing, feeling, experiencing themselves in the world. And uh, right now, um, given that we have this really radical challenge to understand ourselves uh, in a very intimate way as interconnected with other, other places and people, uh, invisible processes, it seems like the arts have a very crucial role to play in that. So when I, my, my interest in art and sustainability doesn't, doesn't exclusively mean we have to represent trees or fish or something in a kind of pictorial way, but that we are offering new opportunities for ethical uh, and aesthetic engagement with, with um, ourselves as human beings, with other human beings, and with the rest of the planet. Um, so so um, that's, that's part of where I'm coming from. I think personally, my development, and I like to say this on the first day of my art and ecology seminars, my uh, grandfather was an engineer for the Department of Water and Power in Los Angeles and uh, in the, from the 30s until the 60s. And uh, I grew up you know, in the concrete jungle, uh, but became, because of that, uh, very, very aware of the utter unsustainability of that place and how it operated uh, on many, many levels. It, uh, it had eco uh, environmental effects, obviously, but it also had economic effects uh, and effects on people's health. Uh, and I am interested in uh, finding the locations between all of those things uh, through my work. Yeah, you mentioned a phrase just before you we went on the mm -hmm. air, the politics of landscape. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting, and I think it takes us back to some of what we heard in the first portion of this, of this program. And uh, can you just tell me what you mean by that phrase? Well, landscapes are, um, are 
we can think of it as a noun, a you know, landscape painting, something that's out there, but we can also think about it as a verb, as a social process of taking a complex set of relationships that produce a place over a period of time and sort of obscuring it by, by an image. So um, there's a wonderful quote by uh, a, a sort of visual theorist, art historian whom I really like, uh, whose name is uh, William Mitchell, that says landscape effaces its own readability. It makes it hard to understand what happened that made that place what it was. Uh, and I think it's really incumbent upon artists to um, start to unpack the pictures that pre present themselves as so bucolic and natural. So for example, we live in Iowa and we're very accustomed to images of corn and soybean. And they seem bucolic, they seem like what has always been here. And uh, it erases the presence of other people historically, uh, other ecosystems, and uh, the kind of complex oftentimes very violent and unjust ways that this landscape was produced. Well, earlier someone sort of mentioned the art of persuasion, um, perhaps thinking about writing and speaking and mm -hmm. so on, but, but art itself uh, has persuasive power. Mm -hmm. I think that certainly we, we can think about it as a form of persuasion, but it also is about um, changing the parameters of the debate. So uh, we have, um, I think, in our political discourse, uh, a, a way of sectioning off arguments and real saying, okay, a certain group of people will think about it this way, a certain mm -hmm. group of people will think about it another way. And I think what art has to offer is a lateral uh, way of kind of cutting across those and encouraging us to think about a problem in a completely different way uh, and breaking down some of those presuppositions about who will think what and how and in what way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, I, gosh, I don't know who to go to next, but maybe I'll go to, to Kyle, because you study film, and I mentioned that you put together this uh, very interesting series of, what was it, seven, eight films during the fall 15. semester? Fifteen. Yeah. And I know that among them were some of those wonderful films by Perry Lawrence from the WPA period, uh, Plow that Broke the Plains, or The River, I don't know which one you did, mm -hmm. but um, many different sorts of films, and just thinking of cinematic history, obviously the environment is a, is a part of... A, a movie painting someone is trying to create. So um, how do you get a handle on things like the environment, sustainability, uh, landscape changes when you're looking at films? You know, I learned a lot from putting together that class. It, the, uh, the course that I taught was, um, it's a screening series that, that is put on every semester by the Department of Cinema and, Cinema and Comparative Literature, and it's sponsored by international programs. Um, and it's a, it's a different topic every semester, and I chose to pitch the idea of doing um, a screening series on environmental cinema, and I really came into it um, somewhat blind. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to find, um, and so I started at the beginning, and it was surprising to see just how prominent the, the concept of the environment, what depictions of the environment were throughout the entire course of cinema. Um, so that is so much to the point that um, early films would, I mean, part of the draw and the appeal of films in, say, like the 1890s would be for some people to see for the first time something like Ni Niagara Falls or in the 1930s, um, you know, a lot of t the, the popularity of the Western wasn't just the, the Western hero, it was the idea that you would be able to see, you know, Monument Valley, which you might not be able to see on your own. Um, and it, the, the, the environment 
is also interesting um, in, in terms of cinema because because of the different times that it seems to, to be charged politically, um, I was really struck by how, how many and, and how many activist films came out in the early 1970s and then how there was this lull um, where there were basically none really until the last decade. Um, in the 1970s, you have films like Logan's Run and Silent Running, um, Soylent Green. The, you have the, the water dispute plot in, in uh, Chinatown, um, which is based on the famous um, California Water Wars when they were trying to secure water rights for the city of Los Angeles um, from you know, surrounding areas. Um, and then basically the, these concerns drop off for a long time and then suddenly there's this huge rise of films in the last decade um, concerning the environment. And I think, um, I think there are two major reasons for that. Um, there's, the, the, uh, there's such great availability of cheap and, and high quality video equipment that people who have activist interests in film can make them. And so with people's growing interest in these, they, they can just pick up a camera and, and make a film. What did you think was the most, uh, when you watched all these films you had lined up and you put together, what do you think was the most powerful? Or what was the one that received the biggest reaction from your audience? Oh, man. People really enjoyed Koyaanisqatsi. Um, yeah. I, I think that that's, uh, I, I think it has a, a big impact still now. But for Koyana Scotsi uh, was a film made by Godfrey Reggio in the uh, mid 1980s. It was made in 1982, actually, um, and it's it's what's called a visual tone poem. So there are no characters. There's no um, traditional plot line or narrative, um, and, and it proceeds merely by um, by juxtapositions of images. And I think. I think what interests um, what interested the students and what interested me about it so much is that Koyaanisqatsi is is in a way um, it's like it's like a, a a scaling technology. I mean, the environmental concerns are are so great and so vast; um, they're beyond our everyday experience. And um, a film like Koyaanisqatsi, by giving you um, juxtapositions of images of things that you wouldn't think about in relationship to one another. Um, you know, large-scale industrial designs as, as well as like vast, you know, picturesque landscapes, um, all intercut with one another um, and with a beautiful uh, Philip Glass score um, can, you know, it can bring it down to size in a way. Um, it can help make it, you know, culturally intelligible, the, like the vastness of these, of these problems. Well, then just to speak about that one film, I, I'm sure many people here have seen it or would, it, would be interested in seeing it, but I know that after I had seen this film many, many years ago, I was so struck by the amazing visual imagery, people doing incredibly hard physical labor and captured in what would appear to be incredibly beautiful um, you, you know, film. And I, I had said something about what beautiful images I thought they were to a friend of mine who was just appalled at the whole, at the, the horrible nature of the work so many people in the world still, uh, still have to do in order to survive. And we had sort of approached the film and the, the um, 
topic from different angles. I think she understood what I meant, and I understood what she mm -hmm. meant, but I was a little surprised that there was such a sort of sharp reaction that had been so different from my own. So I, I suspect these films have caused the same kind of, you know, rethinking one's perspective uh, after you come out of a strong experience like that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a film that concerns the environment that, that's not also um, interested in some way with economics, with labor practices, um, with technology more generally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to you then, uh, Chad. You're a graduate student also, and you're in uh, communication studies, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you are interested in the idea of progress and uh, sort of looking at sustainability and this whole idea of progress, and you've been doing yeah. work on that. Um, yeah, that inter the interest in the idea of progress really only came later. In fact, my, my initial interest was very related to the kind of stuff that Kyle is doing, and it, and it sort of had to do with cultural techniques for imagining or imaging complex problems. Um, and one of the really early sort of things that got me interested in writing about this was a, a book that um, seems to have been sort of forgotten in uh, you know, <laughs> the yeah. vast libraries of uh, the 20th century, but uh, this book by Fred Pollock, uh, who was a, a guy who was really uh, instrumental in uh, initiating the uh, what, what came to be known as a futurist or futurologist kind of movement in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, he was, you know, he was friends with a lot of these people and, and, and influence on them, although we don't talk about him as much today. Um, and he had, he, he uh, had this idea that uh, one of the, the, the fundamental crises of, um, of modern life was an incapacity to imagine the future. Uh, in a way that was sustainable and uh, 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 robust and, you know, it, he thought that in order to sort of ethically commit ourselves to political goals that would help to, you know, um, uh, move us toward a more desirable future, we would have to have an image of what that future was going to look like. And, and, he, and he had this idea that it was very hard for us to, for, for various reasons to imagine that. And so that's kind of where I... Uh, uh, came to this this problem and uh, and after after you know some reading and research uh, I uh, decided that the uh, I think that a very important cultural turning point uh, that for me initiates the modern history of sustainability and some people have said you know we can go uh, we can start with the Brundtland report we can uh, uh, we can go earlier and we can you know we can go back to Descartes we can we can go to the, the Constitution um, but you know the turning point that I for for you know several reasons landed on was uh, around the the middle of the 19th century um, and it had to do with a growing skepticism about what had become a, a relatively orthodox idea about how progress happens or what progress is. And so I, I start with uh, uh, this, this guy, Herbert Spencer, who was an incredibly popular philosopher uh, uh, during his time. And you know, he was the, the first philosopher to sell more than a million copies of his own book in his lifetime. Um, he was incredibly, you know, he's completely forgotten today because it turns out he was wrong about everything, uh, as, as so often happens. Um, but he, he kind of uh, articulated this idea of progress in an evolutionary vein. He was this, you know, he was, he's most often remembered today as, as being a social Darwinist. And, uh, um, um, a free market capitalist and some other things that you know he's usually remembered in a sort of distasteful light, um, but uh, 
he, he was kind of this champion of the, the idea of progress as something that naturally unfolds out of people uh, 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 interacting with one another, you know, as, as kind of imminent evolutionary uh, kind of fact of life. And right around the same exact time, you start getting people critiquing the idea of uh, progress as a, as a natural process. Um, and I think that there's an intensification um, of people talking about progress during that time um, precisely because the idea of progress itself was starting to experience a kind of cultural crisis. And many people mark the, the, the real institutional mo moment of this, or cultural moment of this crisis around World War I, whenever we have mass-produced, industrialized death for the first time. I forget who said that, but uh, for the first time. And uh, this, this idea that uh, technology and technical progress and innovation are not leading us toward um, anything that we could recognize as social progress, but in fact are leading us in the exact opposite way. So these, these things, such as technological progress and economic growth, which used to be the harbingers of social progress, these are the things that we believe in that's going to make society better, uh, uh, came uh, to indicate the exact opposite of what they, they had been indicating. And so I think uh, that um, well, you know, what I'm tracing is the development of the idea of the, the prehistory of the idea of sustainability, sort of the cluster of ideas that eventually coalesced into sustainability. And, and that's where I'm beginning uh, with this initial crisis uh, in the idea of progress. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's, so that's the, the basic uh, relationship between the idea of sustainability and the idea of progress for me. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in this and what everyone up here is also talking about. I think you know, I made wise choices in putting this. I guess you thought of this before <laughs> I did. But, um, but this, you know, this idea of imaging is, is very interesting. And a couple of people brought up the, the Bruntlin uh, definition of sustainability, which, which is, is also one of the, the early things that got me interested in talking about sustainability because it's such a weird perspective to have, right? We, we, the, uh, sustainable development is development that um, what is it, satisfies, meets the needs of, of today without infringing on future generations' mm -hmm. needs. I mean, we've, we've sort of always had that mindset, right? You know, that the steam engine, the coal-burning steam engine was something that was looked at as an indicator of progress because it would uh, allow for distribution networks of food or, or goods or whatever across, you know, uh, geographically distant areas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, it was, you know, that something that today we look at as um, uh, having infringed on us, the future generation's abilities to to meet our uh, social cultural goals, um, was at the time understood to be something that was providing, you know, bounty for those future mm -hmm. generations. So there's a there's a you know a serious prediction problem uh, that one runs into, you know, with, with sustainability, uh, even as a as a normative concept and not a technical one. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a problem of imaging, yeah. right? How do we, how do we uh, uh, model uh, mm -hmm. the future that uh, we, we'd like to, to see right, you know, right, arrive? Right. right. And so you study communications and you study media. Um, how, how do, um, you know, as you look back over history here at newspapers, at, at you know, popular ways of um, announcing a new technological um, Invention, some uh, announcing progress in some way or other. Have have you studied that at all in terms of uh, the way the pop, the, the way popular um, culture speaks about or learns about um, 
uh, what some people propose as progress? Uh, not, a, not as much. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, in terms of the, the distribution, I guess, or the yeah, idea of the yeah, cultural yeah. distribution of the idea of progress yeah. in the popular press, not, not as much. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of people in the panel previously talked about the relationship between um, global communication networks and sustainability. Mm -hmm. that, and, and it seemed like the, the consensus was that sustainability can really only be uh, it can only be an idea that we have or that we can apply in any sense um, once there are global feedback and mechanisms installed where we can track the effects of a, of mm -hmm. a, um, a volcanic eruption or mm -hmm. um, you know carbon emissions from you know, from internal combustion engines uh, over uh, a, a large space and mm -hmm. uh, a global space and a, a, a long period of time. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree with, with that. I think that that's an important first step, but I think that the, you know, the, the transmission of information is one cultural impediment to uh, sustainability, and that's one that we're getting closer to mm -hmm. uh, overcoming. Uh, the, I think that the major one, though, is in modeling, and, and people up here earlier were talking about complex systems, and uh, the, uh, uh, the difficulty of prediction, the difficulty of modeling and imaging a future uh, that, uh, you know, we were talking about geoengineering, which, you know, is, is one of the craziest ideas that I've ever heard in my life. You know, there's a, uh, and, you know, there's, a there's, uh, there was a, um, uh, a, a Royal Society, you know, conference, you know, most eminent scientists in the world, a conference on geoengineering, they published a study and, you know, their, their top ideas were exactly the ideas that the, the people up here earlier were going over, which is, you know, seeding the oceans, dumping iron into the oceans to promote uh, algae blooms and uh, painting all the roofs in the world white, you know, like I mean, things that <laughs> things that um, a seem, you know, just sound science fictiony, and and b uh, uh, have s such unpredictable uh, 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 potential for unintended consequences that um, it's impossible to imagine that they mm -hmm. would ever that, that that they would ever be enacted in the first place, you know, and so. We're, we're sort of put in, you know, like the, in this position where uh, we live in a, what has been characterized as risk society, in which um, the more you know about a complex system, the more you know what you don't know, right? <laughs> and often, yeah. Which often acts as an impediment to action. Um, and uh, and I think that that's I, I think that so as far as uh, information transmission goes, you know, I think that that's a problem. I think information processing mm -hmm. uh, is an even bigger problem, uh, creating robust and reliable models of the future uh, that we can work toward is, is mm -hmm. not an easy problem to solve. Yeah, Barbara. I, I want to uh, come back to a word I heard a couple times. It's one of my favorites, and uh, I think another and maybe simpler way to, to imagine um, uh, new worlds, and, and that's the word juxtaposition. You know, I think so much that the human brain and perhaps the brains of uh, many other critters as well work by processing patterns. And, uh, and so at this point in cultural history in the various places in the world, sedimentary landscape, but the same is true in various forms of the novel or the lyric poem or cinema or various kinds of uh, artifacts, the way that uh, scientific data is visualized or the way that the numbers are graphed. All these things are uh, coded and patterned in ways that we've been all taught to expect. 
And I think one of the uh, great things that I see happening in various art forms and, um, and uh, in scientific exploration as well is the, the presentation of information, whether to one another or to the general public, uh, in ways that uh, juxtapose information in, that's unexpected. Mm -hmm. so, that, so that this world that we're living in, which is all about relationships, uh, is then uh, thought of differently, and those relationships are thought of differently. Mm -hmm. And it, it isn't so much a matter of only looking at uh, 21st century artifacts, but to look through history at, at those, at those uh, productions uh, of whatever media uh, that have had this, uh, this effect of, of juxtaposing um, different, uh, different uh, pieces of information, different pictures in a way that uh, upset the pattern that one had come to expect, upset the, the mm -hmm. and I think Qantas Gottseed uh, does, does that very thing. And so it creates the very conversation that I, I like to think might have been intended about social mm -hmm. justice and environmental beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, so, so much is possible by doing this, including juxtaposing what we might think of disciplinarily separately, juxtaposing uh, scientific data and various kinds of mapping, which are all around us now, uh, in uh, various artistic kinds of what we might think of as artistic context so that that data speaks differently than yeah. it might otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Following up on that, um, I, I define myself as a research-based artist, and uh, then the kind of, the, the phrase that I might prefer but others might, might uh, frown on is amateur. Um, my good friend, the artist Claire Pentecost, has coined a term, the public amateur, to talk about the role of artists in our society, because an amateur is mo an amateur is motivated by love, and not um, disciplinary um, uh, professionalism. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of kinds of motivations, and so the artist is in a unique place because we can um, synthesize, borrow, collaborate, uh, and do so in a way that's motivated by love. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, we, I mentioned that you're you are an intermedia. Mm -hmm. There may be people who don't really know what that. Uh, term refers to. Can you give us an explanation? I can give you a short or a long mm -hmm. answer. The short answer is that it is everything weird. The longer answer is that it's a broad set of practices that um, began here at the University of Iowa in the late 60s. We were one of the first intermedia programs in the country. Uh, and it, um, it arose from that period of great technological, cultural, and political ferment. Uh, and has now kind of evolved into work that is both technological or either technological um, and or social. Uh, so a work that's utterly immaterial, that is process-based or experiential with an audience, uh, or a work that is mediated by various forms of technologies, be it cell phones, um, video, uh, other forms of emerging technologies. Mm -hmm. no. So an average person who isn't part of the intermedia world may feel that there is just so much technology around us. Now it's, it's really kind of hard to keep up. Do you find yourself in that situation too? Or do you feel like this is, this is just such a fantastic new world that we're in? There's, there's just more new stuff every day. Well, I don't think more new stuff every day is necessarily the ingredients of a fantastic world. <laughs> uh, I mean, we all have been uh, watching the story about the conditions under which our Apple products are made uh, and the 
horrible environmental and social toll of those things. Um, so, so clearly, more new does not equal equal better in any way. Um, but it is an opportunity to really um, consider what kind of technology is appropriate, uh, what we can do with it, and what it does to us, how, mm -hmm. it's, how it's changing our social, social relations, how it's changing our, the, the structures of our brains, and uh, uh, how we think and put together information. Right, right. Well, there's one other thing that I, that I know about you, and that is that you have created a post-naturalist field kit. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, that's a totally untechnological project. Mm -hmm. uh, so the post-naturalist field kit uh, is a prototype for an um, urban card game and um, exploration kit uh, designed to, uh, for, for the post-naturalist to go out and collect samples and observations about uh, urban ecologies. Uh, it was uh, designed for a particular neighborhood in uh, Montreal, and uh, sort of uh, it featured ten cards that asked a series of sort of open-ended experiential questions for looking at the intersections of economic uh, economics, environment, uh, gentrification, race, um, and and. Uh, sort of what we ordinarily think of as ecology, what kinds of birds and animals might be in a particular place. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it featured a wooden box uh, with uh, various sample tools, uh, as well as this um, series of 10 kind of exercise cards, which I wrote. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So you, you're introducing this to some of your students, or you're? I did this for, a pro it was a project with Concordia University. Yeah, terrific, great. Well, uh, Kyle, we should come back to you and ask you if you have anything more you'd like to say about the, about the cinema arts and yeah, this area. Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I wanted to add something um, to, I want to talk more about something that Chad was talking about, which is thinking about the history of the idea of progress and sustainability. Um, I'm really interested in the history of the idea of environment. Um, the idea of, in, of environment at all is relatively recent. It, it, um, the first real uses of it um, were in the 19-teens, and at that time it referred to um, the workplace, to, to the, the operations of bureaucracy. And it wasn't until the 1950s that it was actually applied in the sense that we understand it now, and really not until the 60s and 70s that it gained wide currency. Um, I, I've, I think that it's, it's no mere coincidence that the idea of the environment um, arises when it does. Um, I think you know, the environment had to be created. I mean, it had, it had to be produced. Um, it's, it's not just something there. It's, it's, it's an idea that, that we make. And, it's, and it was an idea that arose alongside technologies that allowed it to be visible to us. And, and I think of examples of this um, sort of outside of cinema being that, you know, the, the atmosphere um, arises as a concern when it's operationalized in World War I as, as um, a, you know, a, as a piece of the combat when rather than attacking your enemy, you attack the air that sustains their life. And by instrumentalizing the atmosphere in that way, you bring it into the fold of manifest operations. And if you look back at the history of cinema, basically film technologies were from the very beginning set out to explicate pieces of what were the background um, it, to make them visible. Um, I mean, thinking of the earliest chronophotographic experiments where um, you have 
um, rapid photography um, capturing the movement of a horse's legs to you know, answer the question, which we couldn't answer with our own eyes, of whether or not there was ever a point in its gallop that all four of its legs were off the ground. Um, cinema also, I mean, cinematic technologies were immediately after being produced um, used to, um, to gain images in astronomy. Um, they were hooked up to telescopes for that. They were hooked up to microscopes for microcinematography. All kinds of things came into the fold of, of, of seeing because of these technologies. And I think that um, there's, there's a lot of work that could be done, thinking about how our ideas are influenced by, uh, by, by media technologies and, and the type of access that they give us to phenomena that, that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you. Sort of, you know, to, to build a sort of tangential way on what you were saying, uh, one of the things that that the, what you were saying about the concept of atmosphere being operationalized in, uh, in World War I kind of reminds me of, of what uh, one of the major critiques of sustainability that people have made, um, which is uh, you know, that there's, there is sometimes a kind of ideological overcoating of a concept that, um, that casts it in a different frame, right, in, in, uh, for public or you know, understanding. Um, and uh, I think one of the major critiques of, of sustainability is that um, it has a tendency to monetize natural resources, right? To recode natural resources, which in the corna, corna which a uh, term I really like, uh, cornucopias, uh, I forget mm -hmm. what, you, you know, what it was, um, but it, it made a lot of sense. Uh, uh, view uh, our natural free you know, bounty that Providence has, has given. Um, and uh, the, this idea that uh, the way to um, conserve or protect natural resources is through their monetization, which uh, means to offer economic incentives like you know, cap and trade is a very familiar example, or carbon taxing, that kind of stuff. Um, critics of this have, have um, said that, well, what that does is to make the economic system that has produced the crises that sustainability is supposed to address into the cultural arbiter of those crises, right? And, and, uh, and, uh, and in fact, criticize sustainability as being a way to kind of evacuate uh, environmentalist uh, politics of um, any, any radical potential, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That, in other words, it, it becomes, uh, sustainability becomes a way not to sustain uh, nature, but rather to sustain the economic functions of nature, right? The, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. the, the economic value or exchange value of natural resources. Yeah, yeah that actually leads us so unbelievably clearly into our third segment here that, yes. that thank you for setting that up so well for us. Uh, so I, I will thank you all just now. Barbara Eckstein, thanks so much. And Chad Volrath and uh, Sarah Knauss, thank you. And Kyle Stein, thanks so much for being with us. Please thank our guests. This is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. We invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI. Links to the broadcast can be found at International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. The full World Canvas series can be seen on UITV and will be available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. Um, I'd like to invite you to come to our next program, which is here in this room, the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum.
Museum on March 2nd, and the topic that evening is Japan. So please come. It's 5 o'clock on Friday, March 2nd. So uh, we go now into our final segment. So nice to have you all here. Just next to me is Sarah Rines-Weller, and uh, Jerry Schnorr is back up here again, Craig Just, and uh, Jonathan Finley as well. Um, Sarah Rines-Weller is the John F. Murray Professor of Management and Organization in the Tippi College of Business, and she integrates sustainability considerations into her work with the next generation of business leaders uh, here at the University of Iowa. Thank you for coming. And uh, you know Jerry Schnorr, so glad to have you back. Jonathan Finley is that the uh, far end, and he's an MBA candidate in the Tippi College of Business, a member of the University of Iowa Net Impact Chapter, and the organizer of the 2012 Sustainability Summit that was held earlier today here in Iowa City. I understand you had a great crowd, so congratulations. Uh, <laughs> uh, Craig Just is Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, Faculty Research Engineer in IIHR Hydro Science and Engineering, and the Coordinator of Engineering Sustainability Programs, and the Faculty Leader of Numerous Student Learning and service projects, including a multi-year project in Ghana. There's so much to say about everybody who's been on this program tonight, and I, I'm so grateful you'd be here, because uh, you know you are really important people, certainly on our campus and beyond, um, related to sustainability. And, and so Sarah, we hadn't met before today, but I'm, I'm very interested in the work you're doing with your students in the uh, College of Business. And, and uh, Craig actually pointed me toward a video that showed some of the work you do with your students and uh, some of their projects. So please tell us uh, how you bring this into the business environment? Uh, well, I teach the class on change management in the business school, and mostly that's a, a course about how do you, what processes do you use to actually change an organization that's been operating with different assumptions, uh, ha is set in its ways, uh, when they have to take a new track. So we, we go through the behavioral processes and the organizational processes of changing organizations in all sorts of ways. What I've decided to do, because I think sustainability is such an important issue, is to almost matrix the content area of sustainability as one of the major changes that businesses have to make. Could have chosen globalization, but... So we talk about a number of types of changes but I stress sustainability a lot as the substantive type of change and use a lot of examples about how organizations have changed themselves uh, to be less wasteful of resources, to create new business models, to redesign products with nature in mind and systems in mind and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we do have action learning, service learning, if, if you will, and when John talks later tonight, John was in a fabulous project last year helping the Office of Sustainability and Facilities Management uh, get biofuel for the new boiler that's going to run on biofuels out at Oakdale, mm -hmm. uh, just coming up now. So that was one of the projects that was going on. Uh, they have also worked in the community. Uh, they worked with the city of Iowa City and New Pioneer Co-op to develop uh, with Johnson uh, County Refuse, I believe, uh, ways of composting waste from New Pioneer Co-op and surrounding restaurants. Uh, it got the city moving faster because they had to come up with the regulations 
that uh, would pass muster. And so every, it was a win-win for the city, mm -hmm. for the refuse hauler, and for the restaurants and New Pioneer. Yeah. Well, you didn't specifically mention this, but I'm sure this is part of this, this whole strategy, sustainability strategy for a, a person who wants to start a new business. There's a profitability side to this too, right? You may be helping the natural environment. You may be doing something good in terms of, I don't know, recycling or composting or whatever. But I assume that it's important to also stress that this can this could save you money as a, as a business person. Well, it certainly can. It doesn't always. So I think the, the previous panel here, the, the comments that were being made at the very end are very important questions about should this entirely be about the monetization or the profit-making uh, abilities uh, that, that might arise from sustainability. So the, sh the short answer is some things right now, like omitting waste, recycling, reuse, recycle, reduce, those are low-hanging fruit. They're incredibly, uh, it, it's like finding $1,000 bills on the ground. Yeah. That is, but there are other things. Uh, for example, trying to use biofuels in transportation and so forth, where right now we don't have the scale up so that the, the initial people, the leaders, the, uh, are paying a lot of money for that, and until it's scaled up, mm -hmm. it, it will, it, those things will cost, and, and leaders will do it out of a passion or a belief that that's mm -hmm. what's right to do. Right. Yeah, Jared. Joan, I, ha I have a question, I think, for Sarah, because uh, her work with the business students, I think, is really important and, and needed for uh, sustainability. But uh, I'm thinking of a, of a book that we use in class sometimes, Cannibals with Forks. It's by John Elkington, uh, I think, 1997. And he's a business uh, consultant now with a company called Sustainability. But they, he makes the point in the book, and I think it's the first use of the notion of triple bottom line, that it's not enough just to be economic. Of course you have to be economically viable in order to create jobs and to last into the future, but also you have to be con con considering the social aspects and equity, as was talked earlier, and the environmental aspects. But he, he states in the book that uh, successful companies in the future will be those who uh, embrace the triple bottom line and that that's the clearest way to be successful. Uh, do you really think that's true and is there evidence for it? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that if businesses are not looking at uh, people profit, people profits and the planet there, there will no, be no future business. Um, let me give, I guess, some examples. So people are very split on the issue of whether or not we should be talking about social justice. If, if you're teaching business students, some really, social justice is a bit too far to, for right now, for, for where they are right now. Um, <laughs> what was I gonna say about that? Um, I'm blanking. Anyway, um, do, you think, do you think that's really moving that way? Oh, that well, okay, let that me tell you a story. Recognize. Let me tell you a story. I do think it's moving that way. I think that people are pushing business. Uh, my favorite story of the week is the story about the Lorax. The Lorax was a book written in 1971 by Dr. Seuss. Um, it was a, about a, a creature, the Lorax, who was trying to protect the 
the trees. If nobody cares a lot, uh, we'll lose the trees. And so there's a fourth grade class in Brookline, Massachusetts in the last month that was reading the Lorax and getting ready for the release of the new movie by Universal Pictures of the Lorax. And so after reading the book, they got all excited, they went to the website, and they found that the website was just selling tickets to the Lorax, all this marketing of stuff. And there was no environmental message whatsoever, and that was the main point of the whole book. So they used social media, <laughs> uh, got 60,000 people to sign a petition to get Universal uh, pictures to put more about the environmental message of the movie. They gave them specific suggestions for how they could improve the website. Uh, the website is completely different now. They've got, now it, this is good and bad, they've got all kinds of product tie-ins in with this <laughs> now. So for example, IHOP is making um, green eggs and ham, a uh -huh. Seuss-themed meal that you uh -huh. can have before you go to the movie. Uh -huh. um, I do think that people are pushing businesses. When you talked about your book, I've not heard about that book, but I love the book by Ray Anderson, uh, radical industrialist. Uh, he is the person who uh, founded the Interface Carpet Tile Company. He's a very well-known industrial leader, died just in the, in the past year. But um, the, the, he, he was like most uh, conventional businesses, he believed that because he was following every regulation to the letter of the law, he was, he was doing everything that he could for the environment. He was waiting for the government to tell him what was environmentalism. But he had customers in California who kept pushing him and saying, what are you doing for the environment? You just don't get it. You just don't get it about the environment. So um, he actually kind of reached a crisis phase where um, he had to come and inspire his green team, give him a vision, and he didn't know what that vision should be. And then he read Paul Hawkins' book on the ecology of commerce, uh, the dangers of overshoot and collapse, the way that everything is a system, the, he said uh, that the biosphere, or the, the uh, business uses the biosphere the way that a, a tick uses a dog. Mm. Um, and he ended up going in and delivering the most inspirational speech to his green team. He said, I want us to be a zero waste company. I want us not only to take, not take more from the earth than, than we use, but I actually want us to be a restorative company. I'm going to leave the room. You have two days. I'm going to come back, and you're going to tell me how to do it. So <laughs> wow. it's a great, great story. Wow. wow. I think people are really pushing, and social media is going to make that a lot easier. Look at all the ways social media has been used to change business in the past few weeks. The Susan G. Komen yeah. Race for the Cure, Bank of America, Netflix, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and it's young people who really know how to use social media, and a lot of them care a lot about this. Yeah, yeah. So huh. that is one optimistic <laughs> part yeah. of it all. Thank you. Well, let's turn to um, one of the graduate students here at the University of Iowa, John Finley. Um, you and Craig were both quoted in an article in the paper today about mm -hmm. this very issue, and I'll, I'll just start with you. Uh, tell us something about, uh, well, you know, how did you get passionate about uh, sustainability anyway? I, I know that, that you have been working with Net Impact for some time, and certainly were responsible for, for a lot of the organization for the Sustainability Summit today. So mm -hmm. where did this come from in your life? 
Um, I, I mean, I grew up uh, in rural Iowa, northwest Iowa, and so I kind of grew up, you know, with my family ethos of, you know, when you use a pig, you use everything but the oink. So I kind of grew up with that. And what's really interesting is I'm finding that businesses now are finally getting around uh, kind of to that. And uh, it's been a great time for me just because uh, I think there's so many low-hanging fruit in business right now. Um, to, to give a little bit of context, I, my view and, and our view for Net Impact, at least for the last year, has been uh, you know, you have environmental impact from either the public sector or the private sector. It's a very big, grand, you know, uh, thing. Public sector, we talked a little bit before about, like, the Los Angeles water. So that, that can have big impacts. But the, the thing is, is we're not going to have any progress going forward unless we have companies on board, unless we have the private sector. And I'm not going to say that they're going to be the savior, but you, you can't just have governments go forth and have environmental sustainability. And like up until now, companies have done environmental uh, sustainable processes for one of three reasons. One is they have the heart. So Sarah mentioned Ray Anderson. He just, he really believed in what he was doing. Um, sometimes that costs a lot more money than it does doing it the non-sustainable way. Uh, the second is government regulation. So the governments tell business they have to do something and the, and the businesses usually do it kicking and screaming because they have to. And the third is that Businesses will do something that's sustainable because it makes business sense. So in other words, they either make a profit from doing so or they, they make more money than not doing it the unsustainable way. So one example of this, uh, we, I know we were talking about the University of Iowa and bio, biofuels. I was speaking with President Mason today at the Sustainability Summit and I was on the bio, biofuel project. And it was interesting because she, she was talking about a group of students who approached her and they said, we need to get off coal. You know, we're, we're on too much coal and we need to get 100% renewable resources. And she was talking, she said, well, we could do that, but do you realize that's going to cost us X tens of millions of dollars if we switch tomorrow? And so what we did on our project was we looked at biofuels that cost less than coal. And that was, that was our bottom line. If it didn't cost, if it costs more than coal, it didn't make business sense and the university wasn't going to do it. So what we wanted was a very applicable, very real life thing that would make the university more sustainable, but doing something that they'd actually do. Mm -hmm. and, and so we had numerous examples today at the Sustainability Summit. Like there was uh, one company who is a bottler of uh, beverages and they used 30% less plastic on their new model. Okay. And you know, they were just telling all these things that, you know, we use less plastic, there's less things going into the landfill, and you know what, we save money doing so. And the great thing for me is that what is quote unquote sustainable today is business as usual going forward. Mm -hmm. So what's exciting for me is in five years, 30% or plant material in a bottle is going to be the baseline, and it's going to be 70% or 80% that's going to be the baseline going forward. And it's this continual improvement within companies on you know, how can we be more efficient in what we do? Mm -hmm. And they're starting to realize that being more efficient in what they do actually saves money, saves resources, and saves the environment. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where I'm getting excited is because there's so much opportunity, and it just seems that companies are kind of starting to realize that having a positive environmental impact can save them money. Mm -hmm. Granted, I'm not talking about everything. There are some things, a lot of things that actually cost more money to do the more sustainable way, mm -hmm. but there's so many low-hanging fruit out there that 
uh, can both benefit the environment and businesses. Yeah. Give us another example. I know that one of the presenters you had today was from a delivery company that yes. everyone will, will know this yes. national company. And um, they have tremendously reduced their costs of gasoline, I guess. Yes. And, yeah. So, he, mm -hmm. His example was uh, they had all of this data about where their delivery trucks would go. And they finally sat down and just crunched the numbers. And they said, where are we going? How long are we taking? And, and I'm simplifying it a little bit. They had a lot of data that they had to go through, and it took many, many years to do it. Mm -hmm. But what they did is they completely revamped how they did their delivery system, how they loaded their trucks, how they uh, dispatched their drivers. And they, um, after they implemented this, they reduced their annual mileage by 30 million miles, um, and, which included you know, millions of gallons of gas, idle time, and also uh, you know, costs on overtime for mm -hmm. people to do that. And they said one of the really great things with that is when the holidays would come, they would have a spike in 40% in packages just for people sh you know, shipping for uh, holidays and such. They still have that spike, but they don't have any change in their service level. So they can still do the same amount of service even with that spike because of everything that went into this and their new routes and how they load their trucks. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, they have all the environmental benefits that are coming from this. Yeah. And one of the things I loved with the speaker who presented is he said, yeah, I know that this is a sustainable summit, but I'm presenting this. And you can look at this as logistics. You can look at this as process reengineering. This for us is business. Mm -hmm. And this is how we do it. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is it, this helps us and this helps the planet. And that's just how we work. Yeah, 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 great. Um, well, and Sarah, this all comes back to another issue. You said you, you are a teacher of change management. Change is hard in just about any organization. It seems to me the bigger the organization is, the more complex, the harder it can be. Um, if you are a company of, of any particular size, What's, what's the process of getting buy-in from the people who are affected by whatever, if we just think of it in terms of efficiency here, um, that's, how, how do you help coach uh, businesses on getting through that process? Well, um, I think the, the model that we use is John Cotter's model. It's the most commonly used in business. And the first thing that Cotter says is, people don't change unless they feel a sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency has to come from somebody who's important, who's respected, who's very passionate, very committed. So um, having to work on urgency is, is, is a really big thing. One of the real challenges for sustainability, I think, is that there, there are vested interests who are constantly trying to create a story that this is not urgent. We don't need to do anything. Just, just the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, 19 scientists, you know, there's nothing to really get very excited about. And without a sense of urgency, it's pretty hard to keep maintaining momentum in a business um, because there are so many other things to do. I, I'd like to say how in the area of sustainability, most ongoing long-term organizations have been dealing with sustainability. I know you, you were asking a, a bit before about um, new business models, and uh, what I wanted to make the point is that most existing businesses don't come to new sustainability business models just like that. It, for most old businesses, it has been a process. It's been a process of, first, I just stay legal, 
then a few of them get this sort of enlightened thing if there's, a, there's going to be legislation in Europe, and le which is much stricter in most cases for recycling, for chemicals, for mileage, you know, for emissions. Uh, they start to think, okay, I'm going to start to design to the most strict standard because then I don't have to deal with 50 different states, I don't have to deal with different continents, I can scale up and I get innovation out of this because to meet those standards, I have to design a different kind of product. So they do that, then they go after waste and the waste is the recycling, the um, uh, reuse, the reducing of, uh, of product. Today, Sally Mason had a very interesting thing that the new Hancher building uh, every contractor, every architect was asked about the sustainability impact of their designs. Parts of the new Hancher are going to be made out of materials from the old oh, Hancher, really? wow. which is outstanding. Yeah. After they've worked waste for a while, they start to, Ray Anderson says, uh, waste is the engine that'll drive the whole train because it allows companies to learn how to do things different ways, they see quick wins. Quick wins is a part of this process. So mm -hmm. you do the low hanging fruit, you get the quick wins, then you start educating yourself more and you talk about product design. Mm -hmm. You talk about stripping more parts out of the product. You talk about not mixing materials so that they can be recycled more easily. Mm -hmm. um, you get the toxins out so that you can put things into the landfill. Um, you redesign like nature. There's bio biological mimicry going on. So the, in the carpet world, they literally went out into the forest and noticed that the carpet of a forest was very random. And so this company does carpet tiles. They developed a, a tile called Entropy where they mixed colors, just one palette, but they mixed it in a random way so that when they had to pull up one tile and replace that one tile, which is also very efficient, mm -hmm. it's not like ripping up the whole room of carpet, it's just a little tile, they could replace a new tile with another random pattern from those same colors. They didn't have to have the same dye lot, they didn't have to store all kinds of stuff in the same dye lot. They were mimicking nature and, and making a success. Instead of gluing carpet down all across the floor, which causes sick buildings, chemicals, and so forth, they looked at how geckos can hang from a ceiling, and they mimicked the, the chemical process and came up with something they call tactiles, which are just little things that hold two things of carpet together in yeah. the adjacent yeah. things. So it, it's after all of that that they start getting into new business models, yeah. uh, often alliances. Mm -hmm. So you might have a, a shipping company allying with a copying company so that instead of shipping documents from Washington to New York, you digitally send the document mm -hmm. to New York and just ship it locally. Right, right, um, right, right. So, so they don't get there real fast. It's a process right. of learning from the easy, low-hanging fruit yeah, and the yeah. quick wins, and yeah. then getting more and more exciting and seeing more possibility. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I want to go to you now, Craig. You have been involved in sustainability efforts here and, and lots of other places in the world, and I know it's a passion for you. And, and I read your words in the article today where you said, you know, it isn't about one discipline taking on this, this thing called sustainability. Everybody has to be involved. Everybody can be involved. And so expand on that a little bit. Um, sure. I, I get a little bit uh, queasy when someone says environmental sustainability. Yeah. Um, to me, it's sustainability, and environmental is certainly a component. 
uh, of that. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Donella Meadows. I teach uh, her book, uh, Thinking in Systems, in my class. Uh, one of the things she says is uh, to defy the disciplines, and that was mentioned here today. Um, get the disciplines talking uh, back and forth. I truly appreciate the artists I have in my Intro to Sustainability class coming as an engineer because the artists are also trained in problem solving, uh, as are folks from, from other areas of the humanities and all across campus. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, it's just no one box, no one circle, uh, no one anything. Um, engineers are often taught to, to think outside the box, and artists are taught that there is no box. Um, so uh, I think that's pretty, pretty fascinating. And, and we have a really rich environment here on the University of Iowa campus, um, I think, to pursue sustainability and also different ways to put um, all the different elements we've heard here today, I really feel like I'm around some pretty smart people. Uh, I got to hear a lot of good stuff. And uh, to put all those pieces together in ways that uh, I guess transcend um, kind of the different ways that people are educated. I've I really enjoyed hearing what I hear here, but I'm, I'm also quite uh, interested in ways to translate this kind of this sustainability rhetoric uh, into action at the most practical mm -hmm. levels. Um, you know, I'm from rural Iowa myself, and I travel to rural Ghana, and I can see a lot of these uh, similarities in, in, in things. Uh, there's also some disparities, of course, as well. Um, but so I'm very interested in, in making these, uh, the rhetoric of sustainability um, come to life and, yeah. and to make those uh, kind of those idealisms uh, practical. Mm -hmm. I talk a little bit about these wonderful uh, Ghana trips that you take with a series of students every year. Yeah, I've been traveling internationally with students uh, for several years. I think I've taken over 100 engineering students in particular into the world uh, in various ways. And, uh, oh, I don't know, I probably 25 or so, uh, I hate the phrase, but non-engineers because it's a big lump of uh, other students that I've taken. Uh, when we travel to Ghana now as part of our Engineers Without Borders USA uh, program, um, uh, we always have to have a, a non-engineer on the team, and I typically draw from our international studies program for that, but we've also had medical students go. Um, our most recent uh, trip, I had an international studies uh, recent uh, graduate, and she was also fluent. Uh, she learned uh, Arab Arabic languages here. And uh, she said, I've never heard of this ever before. The local language uh, where we're at in Ghana is, is Chui. It's T-W-E. It's almost pronounced like tree, but I don't know how they, how they get all that. <laughs> anyway, um, she was there for about four weeks, and uh, uh, we were doing many community surveys and trying to understand you know, the demographics of the community in which we would do uh, some of our engineering interventions, essentially, and in partnership with the community. And she essentially, um, after doing all these interviews, uh, started to understand the responses. She, she could learn the language that quickly. Wow. Um, I, I, you know, that just fascinates me. Yeah. And so to have the, the power of those sorts of people on your team, uh, again, define the disciplines, um, and, and in my case, mandating that, you know, non-engineers go. And, you know, when you see, again, define the disciplines and, and the financial folks in particular colleges across our campus say, well, you really should be taking our engineering students. Why are you taking students from other programs and supporting them, you know, financially, and it's like, well, because it won't work if we don't. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, as simple as mm -hmm. I can say it. So, and I'm also really fascinated by the juxtaposition uh, sort of a thing we've got going on here. So, um, you know, I can paint Cabriti Ghana to you. So Cabriti Ghana, um, about six hours uh, inland from the, well, it depends. It could be anywhere from six to 12 hours, depending on which bus you end up on. But, um, uh, you know, away from the, the capital city of Accra, uh, you know, so rural Ghana, 
um, 600 or so people in a village, uh, you know, thatch, roof, clay, uh, wall, construction, no electricity. Uh, they share that, you know, with about 2 billion other people on the planet, no electricity, no running water, a couple hand pump wells, um, no uh, flush toilets, you know, nothing like that. But yet the juxtaposition is, uh, I assume this is being streamed live on the internet, I can show up with a laptop and with a cellular uh, uh, modem plug-in, USB cellular modem on the laptop, and I could stream this thing in Cobriti, Ghana at 3G speeds. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's a juxtaposition for me, right, that I can show up and be able uh, to do that. Um, another juxtaposition is, you know, the, the, the lack of, uh, you know, kind of basic material goods to, to meet basic human needs, water, sanitation, yeah. shelter, energy, things that we would consider to be, you know, most basic to sustainability in our society, uh, yet they don't have those things. And then now oil's been found in the last couple of years off the coast of Ghana, and I've seen the changes just in two years that oil will bring um, to the capital city for sure, and, and I presume, you know, much of that, um, uh, it'll buy a lot of material goods uh, that may, uh, certainly in the short term, provide water and sanitation and shelter for people that don't have it. Yet, as we all know here in this conversation, there are going to be global uh, implications of, of selling and burning that oil. Um, so again, another juxtaposition where the poorest of the poor, as I've seen them, uh, will probably benefit greatly uh, from us burning their oil. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rich learning experience, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, it's, it's very interesting to put students and myself uh, into that situation uh, so you can try to understand your training in this sort of environment as it might apply uh, to a place mm -hmm. like that so far away. Yeah, fantastic. And, and um, Jerry, I'd, I'd uh, kind of like to turn back to you now here. Um, I know some of the work you do related to water systems is actually right here in Iowa and um, the Mississippi River area and so on. Can, can you tell us what some of our biggest challenges are for our, our own regional uh, sustainability when it comes to those kinds of resources? One of the things that I'm asked a lot uh, in community groups and Rotary and so forth is, I don't get it, Schnorr, you know, exactly what's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, water is one of the things that is not sustainable, at least uh, geographically uh, it's distributed poorly and at certain places and certain times uh, people don't have the water, yeah. either the quantity or the quality that they need. Um, we've done a project with the students in uh, Nepal. Mm -hmm. And there, uh, when you go to Nepal, it's about the national income is roughly a third of that of India, so it's an extremely poor country. You know, they desperately need water. And so water projects are one of the things that, uh, in engineering, we're able to uh, help them with in terms of development. But right here in Iowa, uh, we have problems also with sustainable water quality we begin to use our groundwater mm -hmm. at rates that uh, is not sustainable in the long run. Mm -hmm. Both the Cambrian Ordovician Aquifer, which is beneath our feet, uh, it's under pressure, but uh, we're using it at uh, uh, very rapid rates. That, uh, we've pumped it down about 150 feet so far in the northern corridor here between um, Sea Rapids and Iowa City. And uh, that's not to mention the quality problems associated with the pesticides and the nutrients running off our land, making it so not only that we don't have the water quality that we'd like, we call our waters impaired, according to EPA's definition, 
but also we send it downstream to the Gulf of Mexico, which where it causes Gulf hypoxia and problems with shrimperies and ecosystems there. So um, you don't have to look far, I think, to find unsustainable water problems, and uh, hopefully we're about the challenge of meeting them. Yeah. Uh, so this, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the relative, uh, what the full depth of that water table would be, but if we're eating into the, the water table that we need every day, how, how does that ever get replenished in a person's lifetime? Or It, it does replenish, but at uh, very slow speeds, hundreds or even thousands of years, depending on which unit mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about, geologically speaking. The Silurian Devonian is another one that we use heavily, and as we... Um, make more and more urban sprawl and more and more development of communities uh, which aren't a part of the inner city, the fill-in mode of urban and regional planning, which is something that we need represented here as well, then that causes the type of uh, drawdown that uh, I think the general public is unaware that uh, these are real sustainability problems. Maybe there's some comfort in the fact that Chicago's much worse. They uh, enjoy actually the same unit extends over to Chicago, the Cambrian or Division Aquifer, and they've pumped it down 800 feet. Wow. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um, Milwaukee, about 350 feet. Mm -hmm. So, but we're, the point is uh, we're using it in an unsustainable way. It can't go on like this mm -hmm. for many more decades. And in fact, on our, in code in Iowa, we have a, a limit to it and we're very rapidly approaching the limit that's allowed in Iowa law. So then we'll see. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Theoretically, that would mean no more permits could be granted to continue uh, to pump more water. But we'll see that that would be a that would be a big change, and yeah. uh, there will be powerful interests that are brought to bear sure, if that sure. happens. Sure. Um, so of course this doesn't apply to a, a large farming operation, but should all of us be using things like these little rainwater um, barrels in our homes and so on? To, should we be what are the things people can do on an everyday basis to sort of change the ways we all use something as necessary as, as water? Craig. Yeah, Jerry pointed to me, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, take yeah. Um, No, well, so yeah, I mean, we, we can all, I mean, I think the, the sense of personal empowerment is, is always a, a powerful piece to all of this. And I think, again, in the broader context of sustainability with these global issues, you tend to kind of shut down a bit. Um, uh, a little story to go with that, and I'll, I'll get back to what I think about uh, rainwater harvesting and whatnot, but um, uh, this is my fourth time teaching the Intro to Sustainability class. I kind of built that class from the ether. Um, there wasn't a lot of materials to kind of teach it the way I thought I needed to. Um, but the first time I taught it, it was essentially, you know, I, I started with environmental, and then I went to kind of economic and social, because I knew more about environmental, so I thought I'd lead from my strengths, so to speak. Well, it turns out about week four, I'd painted such a bleak picture that half the students were just scared to death, right? And, and that's not a very, that's not a very um, it's not a very receptive place to have dialogue about, about solutions and change and what you can do. Um, and so with respect to, you know, these water issues as well, I think it's very important for folks like us to be um, cognizant of what it takes uh, for lay people in particular to be able to have a conversation about this and, and the power of empowering them to do something. Mm -hmm. So um, with respect to you know, rainwater harvesting, I can tell you in Ghana, 
um, that's a really important thing and a very powerful tool uh, to provide uh, basic resources for people um, in many areas there. Uh, you know, here in, in, uh, in Iowa, um, you know, it might not be as big a part of the overall equation. Um, uh, we certainly have plenty of uh, water around, but it, it can help with the, some of our overall urban uh, stream flashiness. Mm -hmm. um, Clear Creek, I do research in Clear Creek, Iowa. And uh, during uh, a, a harsh rainstorm, it'll go from about four feet depth out here um, at Camp Cardinal Road to 14 feet depth in a matter of just a couple hours. And that's extremely flashy, yeah. boom, up it goes. Yeah. And there are consequences to that. And so if we really could take some of that water storage, essentially a buffer thing, if everyone had a rain barrel, mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, if you did it at that mm -hmm. scale, you could make a big impact. If only one in, you know, a thousand of us have it, mm -hmm. you know, you'll yeah. make some nice tomatoes, but yeah. you're not going to really <laughs> solve the, the watershed issue. Yeah. So. Well, I wish we had more time. I've just uh, learned that we're at the very end of our uh, uh, time here. So I want to say big, big thank you to Sarah Rines-Weller, Jerry Schnorr, Craig Just, and thank you, John Finley. And uh, thanks to all of you for coming. This has been World Canvas, and uh, we are, this program is produced by international programs here at the University of Iowa. And our production partners are UITV, the UI Pentacrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. And again, you can look for this program in various uh, places on your television dial and also in the radio and the podcast on iTunes will be up soon. So please join us here in this room at 5 o'clock on March 2nd for the next program which is on Japan. Uh, thanks to my production colleagues in international programs Caitlin McBride, Connie Shea, Christopher Clough and Amy Green and of course we thank the technical team Mike McBride and UITV. So that's it for this edition of World Canvas. Thanks, you all. thanks uh, all of you for coming and uh, good night. <laughs>